and welcome to this special episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. We are seeing politicians move in directions that are deeply and clearly deleterious to basic democratic government. There's always been scope for abuse in our constitution, of course, but in recent times, so many previously settled questions around our democratic norms have been upended and at sudden speed. Now, that might sound a bit like a conclusion you would expect to find in an Institute for Government report, but it was actually a warning from one of this country's most recognisable journalists, and her words made headlines everywhere. Emily Maitlis, just months after leaving the BBC, where she had made her name as Newsnight's lead presenter, used the McTaggart Lecture in Edinburgh to say many things that would not have been possible in her previous job, including an observation that an active Conservative Party agent was shaping the BBC's news coverage. She now has a new home at Global, is the co-host of the News Agents, which has been declared the UK's biggest daily uh, news podcast. And I'm absolutely delighted that she joins me now in the IFG's own podcast studio. Hello, Emily. Hi, Hannah. Thank you so much for joining us. And congratulations on the News Agents' success. Thank you very much. What's the trick? (laughs) God, um, (laughs) Dino Sophos, I think, (laughs) in one word or maybe two words. Uh, Dino has a really clear idea of what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. And he um, is a sort of perfectionist in how he goes about making it happen. So, um, yeah, we are, we're all rather indebted to him, I think. And are you completely decompressed from the BBC now, would you say? Oh, I don't think you ever decompress as a journalist. I think you merely fight different battles and you sort of find your stress in different ways. I'm not, I'm not sure it's, it's a wise thing. For a journalist to be stress-free. I think things pass you by and you get lazy and you get um, rather too comfortable. So I think there should be a slight sort of seat of your pants feeling to whatever you do. Fair enough. Now, what I want to do is use this discussion to really explore some of the themes that you uh, addressed in your lecture um, and think about the relationship between the media and the constitution. Uh, So to kick off with a really broad um, question, what role do you think the media has to play in the, in safeguarding the UK's constitution? And do you think it plays that role well? The way I see our job is trying to um, guide and inform and hold to account those people that are in positions of power and authority, particularly those that we elect to positions of power and authority. And so I suppose the constitution in a wider way, plays into that. When we see norms being um, contrived and changed and moved in a way that seems, as I said, deleterious to public debate or to democracy, I do think it is our role to call it out. Yeah. And I think the first stage of that is in recognising when that is starting to happen. And my rather unpopular name for that lecture. I mean, it was sort of, you know, obviously it was the McTaggart lecture, but I called it the boiling frog, you know, why why we have this sense of the temperature rising all around us and we forget how to jump out and start screaming, this is happening, this is happening. And that was a thing that began to scare me. And I would say that in the last six or seven years, <clears throat> we've seen things that should have been really bone shattering, really shocking for us as journalists, for, for for media commentators, for people who do those interviews. And we kind of started being accepting. And the acceptance was actually what scared me. 
And when I wrote the lecture, I was kind of coming from a place of wanting to discuss what I felt I'd got wrong as a journalist and where I had been slow and where I'd be actually, frankly, been naive. And I think a lot of the way that populism worked on us had left us reeling because it, there was a playbook, there was a dictionary, there was a there was a, a proper format to how it worked and we didn't know the rules. So we ended up slightly sort of playing catch up and, and gasping for air and, and saying, oh, we're not fake news. Can I just explain how we work and how we operate? And of course, now I look back in what feels like the clear light of day, but it's probably just a different kind of obfuscation. And I sort of think, oh God, we got that so wrong. And so when I gave the lecture, I think part of what I was trying to do was say, I recognise the things that we were doing that were out of date with where the sort of political, particularly the populist political rhetoric of the day was and how we needed to wise up actually, just to sharpen our skill set a bit and see what was coming down the tracks at us. I think that's really interesting. And I think, you know, it was not actually just a universal experience within the media. I think particularly over the last sort of 10 years or so, for anyone who's been sort of observing politics, the the, the sort of shifts in what is what is normal and the way in which debate has, um, has evolved have just become so we've sort of been carried along in the ride as you say and it's that stopping and taking a step back and saying well actually mm. some of these things uh that are happening now were not normal mm. <laughs> five years ten years ago and and reminding yourself of that when you're in a very sort of day-to-day reacting to the latest thing it's quite hard to force yourself to take that step back yeah and there were real i mean there were very concrete moments that i remember and one was over the whole question of prorogation and it is written into the BBC Charter that actually, you know, our impartiality should not be under question over over issues like democracy, right? I think, you know, Tim Davey famously said, you know, when it comes to racism, you don't have to be impartial. And I think the BBC Charter actually says when it comes to democracy, you don't have to be impartial. I mean, you know, we believe as journalists in upholding the democratic rights of the country. And so you will see journalists tweet in the lead up to an election about getting the vote out, right? About people going to vote. Yep. You won't see us talking about which party or what's happening or, you know, on the day of the polls, obviously there's a complete um, sort of perda. We stay away from that. But it's always been acceptable for journalists to say, don't forget, you know, May the 4th is polling day. Don't forget or, or to explain to people how to vote or when or what time the polls are open and all that sort of stuff, because that is seen as part of your, your role. And I think when the spectre of prorogation came along, we originally thought, oh, <laughs> that's ludicrous. I mean, that's never going to happen. Nobody's ever going to actually come along and stop Parliament from doing its job, from parliamentary democracy from doing its job. They're, they're not going to somehow use a mechanism that has evaded parliamentary scrutiny to get through the biggest constitutional change that we've ever seen. And so we kind of, I wouldn't say we were relaxed about it, but we kind of thought, well, of course, we're going to take it on and talk about it. And I remember very, very clearly, actually, Dominic Grieve, um, who was 
kind of leading one of the, the big authoritative voices warning about the dangers of prorogation because it was essentially sidestepping parliamentary democracy. And you might hate parliament, but that is how we work in this country. We have a parliamentary democracy. We don't work off referendas. We don't work off, um, off a, a, a sort of populist, you know, um, vote. We, we work within parliamentary democracies. And, and he was warning about the threat of prorogation and I remember retweeting something that he was saying about, you know, this this would be, you know, anti-democratic for the country and getting called up, told off, you know, pulled aside and, and oh, don't do not do that because that goes against what the government's trying to do. And I remember that being a really sort of seminal, maybe that's too strong, but kind of a, awakening. It was a, It was a moment for me when I thought, oh, I don't understand the rules anymore because mm-hmm. if we are working within... A structure where the government is now literally trying to bypass parliamentary democracy. Are, are we being impartial if we call that out, <laughs> or are we, or are we being biased if we call that out? It was like the ground was shifting, and as journalists, we were made to feel that we were taking sides, or we were being anti-Brexit, or we were being Aris, anti-Johnson government if we were calling out something that was. Literally trying to cyber. I mean, it wasn't a party thing. I remember William Hague. You know, Dominic Grieve, obviously conservative. William Hague, former conservative leader, was was really warning against it. And so it seemed that the the, the sort of political debate at that time was was breaking into people who felt it was really important, whatever party they were from, to uphold the democratic and constitutional norms, and people who weren't afraid to trash them. And as journalists, we got caught in that because. Everything about our job was saying, no, this is, you know, your job is to call out when when these things are being trashed or rubbished or, or broken. But somehow we were being sort of caught in the middle of this as if what we were saying was one-sided. And that was a really, yeah, it was a, a kind of really dangerous, really uncomfortable place to be. I remember that myself and, and how quickly things actually changed because I remember during the Conservative Party leadership process, all the candidates, apart from Dominic Raab, ruled out the idea of proroguing Parliament. And people who ended up in Boris Johnson's cabinet, very, you know, a few, a couple of months later, had said that would be absolutely trashing Matt Hancock. I mean, democracy exactly. Yeah. And then, but, but and by September they were doing it. Yeah. So it wasn't just you know the whole the whole window moved. Yeah. So, so you want okay. to say the Overton window, don't do. you? Yeah. <laughs> and I think, and I think that. That was it. But but I suppose what I'd say is that the Overton window tends to talk about, and I know I was the one that introduced that, so let me kind of paraphrase or explain. The Overton window normally talks about societal shifts, yeah. doesn't it? As a way of saying, oh, no, you know, something that wasn't acceptable 30 years ago, like gay marriage, has now been very much accepted and, and is more understood. This was This was a window that didn't actually, I don't know who it brought with it, because I don't know what people were thinking at that time I think we were all just sort of it was like (laughs) it was like a wrecking ball wasn't it it was like something had just you know sort of crashed through a a sort of a window or a wall and we were just kind of sitting there in shock going is this normal is that right are we are we doing our jobs if we call it out we doing our job if we don't and you're right you know all those candidates who swore blind that they wouldn't go along with something that sounded horrendously anti-democratic, let's be frank, were then explaining how it was all fine. You know, the spineless 
as as I sort of tend to think of them, I either have a sort of backbone and say you don't believe in that, or else say you've got absolutely no morality and you're going to go along with it. But there was that sort of weird, slimy shift of people who could suddenly convince themselves that things that they'd considered outrageous were absolutely fine two months later. And how do you think the kind of tendency of broadcasters to want to sort of set up head-to-heads on things played into this whole dynamic? Because if you, as you say, you had one of the things I think was confusing for everyone, for for us, for, for the media, for politicians themselves, was, was all the different axes that suddenly sprung up over Brexit of people, you know, rather than having the sort of previously understood boundaries between, well, if you're a conservative, you probably think this set of things. And if you're Labour, you probably think this set of things. And and Brexit cut right across that. And so you had people with quite fluid views in in sort of, and it was not necessarily predictable what everyone would think about everything. And obviously, a common technique for broadcasters is to say, well, we'll have one person put one side of, of this argument and another put the other side. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think, you know, something that we've discovered on the news agents within in the sort of the world of the podcast is actually you can have really thoughtful, creative, nuanced chats with people who might be vehemently against one thing and on a very similar subject, massively pro it. And those are really fascinating to explore because they're actually what make us sort of tick and they what make us complicated. And we don't, we nearly always just talk to one person on one mm. subject on one day, which doesn't mean we don't put the other side or we don't do the other side or we don't talk to all parties, but we tend to explore, you know, with one person because you actually get more out of it. I think it's a very old-fashioned idea, isn't it? I mean, you know, I suppose it goes, you know, James Graham's play Best of Enemies, you know, talks about the the sort of adversarial nature of TV. And, I, of course, as a broadcaster and somebody who's done a lot of late-night television, yes, I suppose producers and presenters are often looking for fireworks, right? That's how it starts. You want people who will give you a good clash of ideas because you think that that's going to generate more interesting viewing for for the audience. And the truth is that probably the people who are very, very strongly in favour on one side and very, very strongly anti on the other side are very, very particular and small percentages of that debate and most of it, it it sort of does land in the middle and I guess the worry is that that can be quite bland if you just have one person talking about it endlessly very late at night but I also think and this was something I, I talked about a little bit in the McTaggart was I also think the problem is that we we set up particularly during the Brexit um, debate what I later learned was this horrible phrase both sideism and when I tried to explain this in the McTaggart it was possibly misunderstood, maybe I didn't do a very good job of explaining it, which is not to say you don't need to have both sides of an argument. You certainly need to have both sides. You need to have all sides. Let's let's be honest, there aren't two sides to an argument. There's, there's normally kind of, you know, loads. And you want to convey as many of those as you can. But I felt that what we fell into the trap of doing quite often was presenting the audience with... Um, two sides of the argument as if it had been just as easy to find both those sides. And we should really have said, by the way, I had to I had to make 60 phone calls before I found this woman, right? Just so you know, we've got her and we want you to hear what she's going to say. And we think it's an important voice. But I had to make 60 phone calls just to get to one person who could articulate this. The other side, I found three within 15 minutes, mm. right? And I think 
part part of what we're trying to do now is just pull the curtain back a bit and be more transparent and say, yes, we've got you both sides, but don't think that both sides is a 50-50 percentage weight of public opinion or of where the debate is or of or of how easy it is to find experts who espouse those ideas. And I think that was quite an important thing, a lesson for me to make, which you, you just got to, you've sort of got to show people how hard it's been for you to find those ideas, because sometimes we don't. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And in terms of sort of constitutional issues, which obviously Brexit raised lots of those, and we, but we've also had plenty that have come up in the context of COVID and, and things that have happened since. and But they can be quite dry and they can be quite technical. Do you think, well, on the one hand, that journalists sort of feel confident enough in their understanding of the constitution or that sometimes they maybe don't rush into covering some of those more complex but very important questions because they're not totally totally confident in them. And as a sort of follow-on to that, do you think the extent to which the media chooses to pick up on some constitutional questions or not, whether driven by that dynamic or not, if you think it is one, has an effect on... Sort of what po- what politicians feel they are able to do, mm. or they might get away with. Oh, that's that. a really. I mean, it's such an interesting thought. I mean, I would. I can only speak for myself, but I'd say I'm not constitutionally literate enough, right? So, if you sent me a constitutional question, I, I'd call the IOT, right? I go straight <laughs> for a constitutional expert, and I know who those people are, and they can talk me through what I need to know. And I actually like that. I like having somebody else spell it out who has spent you know years (laughs) pouring over this stuff and can tell me precedents or can tell me anomalies and I think that's sort of fine but I suppose the truth is that we are slightly scared of this stuff if we you know it's a bit like having your first aid you'd be if you were a bit if you felt more um informed I think you'd be a bit braver we'd be a bit more robust maybe we'd be better at calling politicians out on it but I suppose the question is if you are in a place where the government of the day is railroading through constitutional norms and they don't care, then the harder thing for us is to say, why should they care, Mm. right? Because what was happening, and, you know, you'll remember this because I think you're in the same place as us, was that the media um, or portions of the media, just like constitutional experts, were somehow being portrayed as the other or the outsider, or the elites, or the people that were trying to stop, um, you know, the Johnson government from getting through the people's will. And this goes back to the very first answer, which is now I understand the playbook, right? Now I understand how it works. You isolate, you divide, you, you know, as a political populist leader, you say to your people, don't let those pesky journalists get in the way of what I'm going to tell you. And certainly don't let Hannah White and the Institute of Government and all the constitutional airy fairy people tell you what's right. I can do that for you because I'm a populist leader and, and you are my people and I will speak directly to that. And I suppose that's something that, that we had to be aware of. You know, the, the endless use of the word patriotism, you know, the flying of the flags, the question of being loyal to your country. I mean, really heinous charges, actually, you know, against journalists that they were somehow out of touch or elite or whatever, because they hadn't gone along with the sort of the the populist vandalism of the day, I think was, you know, was pretty upsetting, actually. And I think once you understand it as being a way of 
seizing and retaining power, you understand it's part of the populist playbook, then we can all kind of get on with what we're doing. But there's a question whether, you know, if I'd started talking about the constitution then, would I have made myself, you know, more friends in government? I think probably not. I mean, I've, I reflected, I have reflected with some of the things that have gone on, whether, you know, as a constitutional expert and it being my job to think about these things, some of it, it has been designed precisely in order to stimulate Hannah White of the IFG and other people to express outrage about a certain thing. And, you know, precisely in being the person who comes out and says, you know, prorogation is not something that you do for five weeks in these circumstances. It is, should be, you know, that that is actually the case that sometimes that's that's the reaction that is desired. Look, I think, I mean, I think that's spot on in the sense that um, we've seen now under Rishi Sunak what kind of um, cohesion and normalcy and a, a restoration of relations with, you know, with other governments, with other countries looks like, right? But I think it's very interesting when you you sort of, you remember back and it was all about picking fights, right? That was how the ground was laid. And when I was listening to the German ambassador today saying, you know, Rishi Sunak's clearly somebody who wants to actually get things done or wants to restore relations, it's a very, very different track that this government is now on compared to the one that was about throwing sand, throwing salt in your eyes, mm. right? And the more you responded to that, as you say, whether it's Hannah White of the IOG or whether it's the Refugee Council saying, this is disgusting, this is shocking, mm. you're basically playing back into that same, you know, that same playbook. Oh, great, I've upset the the whoever's. Oh, I've upset the Refugee Council. Oh, I've mm. upset the UN. Oh, I've upset the IOG. And so, yeah, of course you think more carefully about how you're going to respond because... You, you feel like a bit parter, right? Yeah. So moving on, just a couple of questions on the, on the BBC. The, the issue of standards, rules and ethics obviously hasn't gone away under Rishi Sunak, um, even though some of the issues he seems to be dealing with are ones which predated um, his his time coming in as, as Prime Minister. And we have seen the BBC dragged into some of this. Do you feel it, it was a bad look, it has been a bad look that the BBC's chairman knew, met and may have advised Boris Johnson on his finances before he got the job? I think it's a bad look that he didn't tell people. I think it's a bad look that that didn't go to the Commons inquiry who were asking questions, that nobody who was vetting was told that. I think what seems to me inconsistent, um, and I know Rich and I like him, I, you know, I think he's great company. I think he's pr pretty good at what he's doing. I don't think it makes sense to have told one person so it's not a problem, i.e. Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, and then not to have mentioned it in your board, you know, in your uh, interview, interview yeah. not to have mentioned it when you're talking to a, a select committee inquiry. I think you have to show a bit of consistency. Either it's ringing alarm bells to you or it isn't. And the sort of like, oh, but I mentioned it once to someone once doesn't quite explain that. I think the bigger question is when you come in as Director General and talk about impartiality, you have to know what that actually means because I would agree with Tim Davey that impartiality is non-negotiable. It is critical. But the one thing I've noticed is the way that crusaders start using the word to mean 
don't do that story or don't ask that question or don't critique that policy. And that is not impartiality, that's censorship. That's the exact opposite of what we should be doing. We are impartial when we do our job properly and when we actually do it without fear or favour. And I think it's um, unnerving to feel that you're being pushed down an alleyway where impartiality is the word used to say, please don't upset those in power, particularly if they are giving us money for the licence fee. Do you think the Gary Lineker row has sort of highlighted that sliding? Yeah. I mean, I think the Gary Lineker row was so infinitely worse than it needed to be. Really, you know, it needed to be. I think, what did it tell us? It told us fundamentally that Gary Lineker had a lot more clout and was more in step with the public and actually had a lot more power um, than the people that were trying to rebuke him. And so you have to think very carefully about what that rebuke's going to look like and whether you have backup and whether you have anyone to actually run your sports shows if you're going to go that far. I think, you know, the question of the tweet or the, the reply or whatever, I think is is sort of still open. I, you know, I wouldn't have got away. I wouldn't have been able to do that as a journalist. I wouldn't have done that in news. But I think so many people take a salary from the BBC, whether they are entertainers or sportsmen and women or um, environmentalists or gardeners, whatever. And you whether know. or not they're freelancers, Gary Lineker is currently exploring. Exactly, right? And, and, I, and I think the moment you start saying, no, you know, no. Can you imagine if we were saying that, Stuart Lee, you're a comedian, you, you, you go out on a limb to make very, very anti-government comedy for the BBC. What would happen if he was tweeting stuff about his own show? I mean... I don't know. I don't know where it ends. Do you know what I mean? So I think you have to be sort of grown up about the fact that Gary Lineker's clearly going to tweet what he wants. And you then have to decide if he's going to work for the BBC or not. Right. Yeah. But at the moment, it seems that he's kind of he's kind of got that battle where he wants it. Mm. And and just on this question of sort of in, independence um, of the BBC, do you think the BBC has a duty to promote the union? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, that is the status quo. That is the, you know, for the for the UK government, their stated policy is 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 unionist policy. But of course, the BBC is also uh, the BBC in Scotland. I haven't thought about this, yeah. um, but I did cover the twenty fourteen referendum in Scotland, and it wouldn't have occurred to me, honestly, for Newsnight to be pushing the idea of the no campaign over the yes campaign that would have seemed com completely anomalous to my job. So I don't think as an individual journalist, no, we, we should be doing, otherwise why would, why would anyone from the SMP ever come on? Why would anyone ever trust you? Why would, why would, you know, Scottish people with the vote want to talk to you? We've been doing a, a review of the constitution here at the IFG with the Bennett Institute in Cambridge, and one of the aspects we've been trying to think about is is how the public understands um, the union and constitutional issues more generally, because we do a lot less in terms of school and, and educating our young people mm. about how the constitution and so on works here than do other countries. You know, um, I mean, look, it's not a million miles, and you know, obviously, I don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about Brexit, but it's not a million miles away from government ministers saying you have a patriotic duty to support what the government's doing 
over Brexit negotiations, right, which was something that was put to me by an Andrea Leadsom. It'd be nice if broadcasters could be a bit more patriotic. And I recoiled from that because I don't think that's my job, to be supportive of the government's negotiations. I think it's my job, if we're going to talk about patriotism, to do my job to the best of my ability to inform the people who pay my wage from their licence fee, as was. I think my patriotism is towards them and the way I do my job. But I suppose that's it's not dissimilar, right? That we're, we're not really a state at the BBC. You're not a state broadcaster. You're not a union broadcaster. No. You are a public broadcaster. And that includes all the countries of the United Kingdom. You know, shortly after we left the BBC, or shortly after we started the news agents, the Queen died. And it was really interesting that we had this discussion that I don't think we would have ever thought of having on the BBC, which was about how we all individually felt about monarchy mm-hmm. and about our relationship to you know, royalty and how we'd grown up and all the rest of it. And it was quite uncomfortable, actually. But we all tried to be as honest as we could about whether it was sort of dominant in our lives or whether it was nothing in our lives or whether, you know, how how we responded to the death of the Queen. And I think that's another example where if you'd been at the BBC, you know, if you hadn't had exactly the right shade of black on, (laughs) you would have been out the door or you would have been sort of wrapped. And I remember doing events like that and being kind of terrified, you know, that if you if you accidentally said one word wrong, if you accidentally sort of breathed at the wrong point or God, you know, spoke in the silence or whatever, it would have somehow seemed like a heresy. And actually, I'm not sure that reflects how most people in the country felt. You know, clearly yeah. there was an amazing outpouring of grief and there was a wonderful sense of celebration at her life and there was the queue and, you know, the length and all the rest of it. But there are also people who just, <laughs> you know, felt absolutely nothing or who got on with their lives or who were quite upset that the cycle routes had been changed and that the supermarkets were shut on the day of the funeral. And, you know, and I sort of think it's just as much our job to reflect that now as well. You yeah, know? it's interesting though, isn't it? Because there are some things where, as you say, it might not have occurred within the BBC that it was even possible to debate some mm. of these questions mm. when actually you could say that they're equivalent in terms of, you know, should, you know, do we want to continue to have a monarchy do we want to continue to be a member of the eu if these are seen by some people as settled constitutional facts and other people that are up for deba- other people as things that are up for debate mm. you know it seems like it would be a really good idea for them I mean, to, I be think, able- to, to be fair i think the bbc did talk to republicans but it was almost like this is our republican slot yeah. we've now got a republican yeah. listen to yeah. the republican yeah it wasn't a kind of Again, it goes back to your thing of being the sort of binary thing. Are you a monarchist or are you a Republican? A lot of people would be like, you know, I love the Queen. I thought she was great. She reminded me a bit of my yeah, grand. It's much more nuanced. I don't want to. I don't want yeah. to spend eight hours in a queue yeah. or whatever. You know what yeah. I mean? You yeah. can. You can be both. And actually, yeah. that sort of seems to be the slightly more human, realistic kind yeah. of middle spectrum is where most people, I think, probably land. Just um, talking about the media and more more generally. Do you worry about the rise within the UK? Obviously, it's been a feature in the US for ages, but here of more partisan channels of media and, you know, for example, seeing now serving Conservative MPs, interviewing Conservative ministers and whether that's going to have a sort of polarising effect on the media. I mean, I do think it's a question for Ofcom. 
<laughs> it really is a question for Ofcom. If GB News is employing sitting Conservative MPs who are interviewing senior past and present Conservative leaders, because I don't think they're meant to be doing that. And so the question is, why isn't Ofcom getting involved in the setup at GB News? Is it because they don't think it's big enough or is it because they're scared of it or is it because they don't want to be on the wrong side of it? And it, it is odd. I mean, clearly, you know, po- we're a podcast, we aren't covered by Ofcom. So I suppose, you know, it's you could say oh, it's a bit rich for her to sit there. She can interview who she likes and do it as you can, <laughs> you know, it, do it in the way she likes. We, we do try and, I mean, we have, I think we've actually had more Conservatives on than Labour people actually, but I think we try and get a good mixture of, of both of everything. And it wouldn't occur to us not to. And I think it's odd that we have sort of slid into this idea that if you have just left government as a disastrous chancellor or prime minister, you just call up your mate <laughs> on your friendly TV channel and go and do them instead. I don't I I don't really I don't think that's accountability. And I don't think it's particularly healthy for journalism or for democracy, no. And going back to where we started, your warning that we're seeing politicians move in directions that are deeply and clearly deleterious to basic democratic government. What should we all be doing about that? Apart from calling it out, which is what you did in that election. Well, what I would say is that since I said that, I think we have moved away from that. And I think the reason it's been called out is because fundamentally it didn't work. It led to disastrous government. It led to a lot of bad policy making and really unhappy public sort of responses. I mean, I think you can see now, you know, the prorogation case in point was called out, you know, by the Supreme Court. It was illegal, right? Um, I would say the sort of the, the use of the throwing out of fake news when you don't want to answer a question has been exposed as a sort of sham, sort of quite shameful, but quite obviously um, made up. You know, it's a it's a bad look if a politician isn't able to answer a question. Um, I think there are places that, you know, you see it really badly now, whether it's in Israel, where they're trying to overturn um, the way that you know, the judiciary works and functions independently, whether it's... Which arguably is quite a... uh, could be quite a salutary example for the UK because Israel is one of the only other countries in the world without a written constitution. Right. So, you know, I think that is a really interesting thing for us all to be paying attention to, what's what's gone on there. As you say, I, I think you're right that... Actually, in, in lots of ways, you can point to things in our constitution that have worked well over the last five to ten years. And, you know, regardless of what happens, for example, with the outcome of the Pri- Privileges Committee uh, inquiry into Boris Johnson, the very fact that there is a Privileges Committee uh, inquiry and the Parliament has said, we want to look into this question of yeah. whether whether we were misled and we will take our view on it. I just think, I think that is really important to a lot of countries in the world where that sort of mechanism whereby you could bring back a former prime minister and question him for three hours in parliament it's extraordinary. would never happen. It's extraordinary, right? And 
And I think it's really important to remember that that wasn't about the parties. It was about the truth. Yeah. And it was about setting a precedent. And of course, it's ironic in some ways because we know that Boris Johnson, you know, has in past lives, past jobs, been fired for lying. So it's not like there's this big question of whether or not he is capable of being a liar or not. We know that. It's whether it happened on this one occasion and whether there was intent behind it. And I think you're right. You know, the fact that we are actually putting ourselves through as a country this slightly undignified, in a way, process of, of putting him on the stand is something we should be really proud of because it means that we still care about that. I don't think anyone's enjoying it really, are they? I don't think Boris Johnson enjoyed it. I don't think any of the committee members enjoyed it and the rest of us I bet Bernard Jenkins it, enjoyed it. Was... <laughs> I don't know that. We'll have to ask him. Um, that's been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us today, Emily. Thank um, and thank you all for listening at home. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms, including this week's regular episode of Inside Briefing. We're hot on the heels of the news agents, so remember to leave us a review. And I'm sure both our podcasts will be returning to all the questions we've explored today. So keep on listening. See you next time. Bye.